Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. So welcome everybody to another podcast of A Different Kind of Walk. Uh, we are thrilled, and I am particularly thrilled today to have Dr. Jeff Nasser join us. Um, Jeff is a former parishioner of mine at the Paoli Church. Um, uh, I consider him a dear friend, such a dear soul, incredible. And um, uh, I will mildly, embarrassedly say um, Patty and I took a ballroom dancing class for a while, uh, and Jeff and Lori um, were a part of that, and they did really well, and Patty did really well, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jeff, welcome. We are really glad to have you here sharing with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about growing up and how your life was all messed up and you became a Michigan <laughs> fan? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Michigan. Um, so I grew up in a small town on the west side of the state, right on Lake Michigan. Um, and I, we have a, a long, not that this matters, but a long family history of Michigan involvement. My great, great, great grandfather was on the original Board of Regents years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't give you much of a choice. I, that's the only school I applied to. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I went there uh, undergrad and uh, um, uh, was there for medical school. Also went to medical school there. Okay. All right. So, you know, Ann Arbor well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and is that where you met your wife or somewhere yeah. else? No, we met there uh, during college. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you've been together for a while. Yep. 31 years this year. Wow. Yeah, no, we did one of these graduation, um, moved to Philadelphia, uh, got married, did a honeymoon and jumped right into my internship. So okay. Kind of bam, bam, bam. Yeah. So that's what brought you to Philadelphia was your internship at UPenn. Yep. Yeah. And um, that was just a I don't mean just as in no big deal, but that was a specific psychiatric internship. Yeah, you have to do. Um, so there's a variety of, of options in some ways. So the residency program is a four year program. The internship is the first year. And so you can do a general medicine internship or um, in the psychiatry side of things. Um, we did. I'm trying to remember the number. It doesn't matter the number of months, but there was some some internal medicine, some neurology and some psychiatry during that first year and mostly inpatient emergency room coverage, that kind of stuff. Okay. And then you moved into um, the next three years were more a combination of a little bit of everything, inpatient work, outpatient work, different types of therapy, you know, lecture classes, all that kind of okay. stuff. So. so you could have specialized in podiatry or hair growth ology <laughs> or fingernail-ology, um, what is it that drew you to psychiatry specifically? I mean, I know you as probably one of the most gentle souls I've ever met. I don't know if that's part of it, but what drew you to psychiatry over 
the many different kinds of specialties you could go to. Yeah, I mean, I went into medical school, so no one else in my family uh, really is involved much in medicine. And uh, so I kind of had a, you know, preconception about what it was going to be like, which it it wasn't. So um, Mm -hmm. when we got into the second, the way um, it's changed now, but um, the way Michigan worked at the time was it was two years of a lot of lecture hall, you know, like 40 hours a week of of lectures and tests and studying. And then um, uh, two years of uh, rotations where you do all the different types of different medicine. And so I went in thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician and I wanted to work with kids. Love kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I got into the pediatric rotation. It was a two month rotation and it was getting into the hospital at six o'clock rounding on seeing all the patients that you were working with and then sitting in a conference room and writing down test results and charts and all that stuff. Um, and it just, there wasn't a lot of patient engagement. I didn't really like that. It was kind of a surprise to me. Um, Mm. And I did my psychiatry rotation right after that. And it was at the VA in Ann Arbor. And uh, and it was one of these situations where, you know, I walked in the first day and they handed me a bunch of charts and they said, you know, here's your caseload. Uh, You're running a group at three. See you later. (laughs) A little trial by fire, but it was, it was wonderful. And the group of guys, they were all guys on the unit. And, but it was a group of guys that, um, they, they were like snowbirds, they would migrate. So they would hang out uh, in the summers, you know, late spring to early fall in Ann Arbor. And then they'd all leave the hospital against medical advice and they'd hitchhike together down to Florida and they'd go to a VA in Miami, hang out, oh. you know, for the winter down there, do the same thing, come back up to, to Ann Arbor. Wow. Um, so they were just, you know, very irreverent, a lot of fun, you know, a neat group of guys and really kind of... Um, it was, they embraced me in a way coming in as somebody who really didn't know what they were doing at all. Um, mm. And it was really a wonderful experience. And so from that, I had the opportunity to do, um, decided to kind of think about moving in that direction and did some other, um, you know, electives in psychiatry, some outpatient stuff and some other okay. And so I think my third year, um, we did one, like a half day a week for half the year uh, at Children's Hospital, mostly doing intake evaluations for families that would come in. Um, and, um, and then I decided that's the direction I wanted to move in. I kind of knew I was going to go in that direction anyway. Um, and then after Did your the wife year, know before you knew? Yeah, probably. <laughs> 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 uh, and then, so, you know, I applied and, and, um, got accepted to the, the child psychiatry program at CHOP and that's a two-year fellowship. So, okay. That. Um, but yeah, they had a really neat program there. Um, it's all, unfortunately, it's all closed down and, and done now, but um, it, it actually wasn't technically CHOP. It was the Child Guidance Center of Philadelphia. And it's where uh, something called structural family therapy was invented by a guy named Salvador Mnuchin. And um, so, it, you know, it has kind of this history in psychiatry that it's, it's uh, kind of well known. Um, uh. What I loved about it when I was there, they actually had um, what they called the apartment and they would uh, admit not just kids, but they would admit a family that would live in the apartment. There was, um, I never remember whether, is it two-way or a one-way mirror, whatever it is, where you can kind of see through it. So they would do training where they would have people go into the apartment to do family therapy sessions. And then some of us would stand outside and the family knew we were doing this, you know, and observe so we could kind of learn by observing. See the We'll call it a secret window. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> <That works. laughs> so. I always forget what that is too. 
Okay. Oh, wow. So did the funding run out for that program or what happened that it? Yeah, back on? when I was there, it, there was a whole shift from, and it was all insurance-based kind of stuff. So, um, you know, they were kind of moving into the HMO process. When I first started there, the average length of stay um, on the inpatient unit was about a month. Right. Um, you know, within a couple of years, it was down to 10 days or less. And now it's okay. probably like less than a week. Um, so and, you know, it's very much structured around what we'll pay for what's necessary effectively. So. Um, right. But you learned a lot from that. Do you wish that there were still more people learning from that oh, kind of process? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's I think and this is a, a, a sort of an editorial side comment. But I mean, one of the things in psychiatry that is. A little rough. I mean, we have the opportunity and we learn about doing therapy, but much less so than, than we used to. Um, and so a lot of the focus now is really about, you know, medication management, psychopharmacology, right. um, crisis management, you know, doing assessments to assess, you know, need, you know, level of care, that kind of thing. So right. there's less focus on the, the variety of types of therapy. Um, and you have to kind of, I mean, you can, you can do it, but you have to kind of seek it out separately. Um, okay. So. Yeah, I mean, as a pastor, I did hear words of frustration that, you know, going to the psychiatrist is just kind of telling me what meds I should be on. Yeah. Finding the right counselor is so difficult. That's key. Yeah. And uh, it is difficult. Yeah. So how do you walk that? I mean, you can't tell me anything personal, but how do you walk that line with patients? And, you know, when I met with you, when I was dealing, originally dealing with this disease, you spent an hour with me. I mean, do you, is that kind of who you are with most patients? Yeah, I, you know, um, I, when I graduated from my fellowship program, we have a, a, a board certification process, we have to take a written test and do some other things. And um, so I went to a, a week long review course, and there was probably like 400 people there in Washington, D.C., and and we would all have lunch together, just kind of, you know, meet different people. And so I was thinking about going into private practice at that point. I, I did a, um, I was on staff at Children's Hospital for a year after I graduated and then went into private practice. Um, and I talked to a bunch of people and it was interesting to me because everybody was equally busy. Everybody was doing private practice work. I mean, there's a lot of need, you know, and everybody's pretty, pretty busy in terms of what we're doing. But how you structured the practice varied greatly depending on whether you took insurance or not. Um, mm. And so if you took insurance, um, you know, reimbursement is not as good as it is otherwise. And so you had to see more people in an hour to kind of make up for that. Um, you had to have more staff because I, mean, I some people I talked to had, you know, two or three people that were devoted just to dealing with insurance. Um, and so I thought, you know, how do I want to practice? How do I want to structure this? And so what I ended up doing was um, I went, I, I'm fee for service. You know, I provide, you know, information for people that want to submit to insurance and they usually can get some reimbursement, but I'm not directly reimbursed by insurance. And that allows me to kind of, you know, structure my time the way I want to. And so I do spend more time. Like, you know, when I do a child evaluation, it's an hour and a half, um, you know, usually for adults, it's an hour uh, my my follow up visits. Thank you for putting me in the adult category. Not <laughs> it was close. Maybe an hour and fifteen. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah. So, and and the intakes and the evaluations are one thing. The the follow ups are nice because I, I spend a full half hour, um, whereas it can typically be ten to ten to fifteen minutes. Right. Um, 
otherwise. And so I get, I think of it as being sort of a, a form of, of therapy in addition to the medication management. You know, I spend time, I get to know the person or the family if it's a, a child. Um, you know, we talk about more than just how the meds are working, but I get to know, you know, school, work, life, relationships, you know, right. all those things. Um, and uh, which I, I think makes it more meaningful in a lot of different right. ways. So I, I, and I enjoy it. It's, it's, uh, so are you more rare? I think um, so. Yeah. I mean, most, um, most people taking insurance and having to do those quick intakes and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first looking for a psychiatrist, I went to a place close to my house and they wouldn't see me because I, they took insurance and I wanted to just pay out of pocket because I didn't have insurance for that sort of thing necessarily. And they wouldn't take me, they wouldn't see me. So I then left and went to another place a little bit further away and the same deal. And then I left and went to another place further away and same deal. And I was so devastated that day that I, you know, like I'm, I'm doing everything right. I'm trying to go find help and no one will see me. Um, and I came home and like gave up for a day or two. And then I got online and um, just Googled stuff. And I eventually found someone more like you who just, they, they don't necessarily take insurance. And I was able to just go and do the hour and a half evaluation and do all the things. And, and it's like, I want to pay. Like, I'm not, I don't need insurance. Like, please just someone talk to me. Um, That was so hard. Yeah. I, and I, you know, and I'm one of the things that's incredibly disappointing for me uh, is it's an obvious statement, but our system is so incredibly broken. I mean, you know, in in mental health, we've got a two-tiered system, you know, actually three-tiered, you know, we have people that have public assistance that really, you know, can get great care with that. You know, we have people that have private insurance, that it's, it's depending on the situation, but it's not great, you know, and then people that can pay out of pocket. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't be any of those things. I mean, everybody should have equal access. And, and um, it's incredibly frustrating to hear your story. I've heard it many, many times. And um, it just makes me really sad for, you know, there's, it shouldn't be like that. Like you said, if, you know, if you have the ability to come in and um, provide whatever they need to be able to see you. Um, I mean, that's what we really go into this field for in the first place. That's, you know, we're here to help people and, um, and our system doesn't allow that to always happen the way that it should. And I think, um, yeah, it's just frustrating. Yeah. So I'm sorry you went through that. So, so when I was growing up, even as a teenager, I don't remember hearing anything about anybody speaking about any kind of issue of mental health, let alone psychiatry. So you hear that a lot now. When, when did that change start to happen that that became more of a public conversation in your kind of point of view? Yeah, I think it's been a, a slow evolution. Um, Cause I, I, I mean, I'm a little bit younger than you, but I have the same experience that, you know, growing up, it just, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that was really discussed much at all. You know, I think being on sort of this side, you know, working in psychiatry and I've done some administrative psychiatry work with like the Philadelphia Psychiatric Society and things like that. You know, the mission for all these organizations is always to kind of get the word out, advocacy, 
um, you know, work with stigma, those kinds of things. Um, right. So I think that's been a, a process. I, I still think we have a, a very long way to go. Um, I, I do think that, and maybe this was starting even beforehand, but I, you know, I think the whole COVID situation has really shifted things dramatically for a lot of people. Um, okay. you know, I think it's much more, as this all has played out, um, you know, I think especially kids that are in transitions. So certainly the younger elementary age kids had a hard time that first year, you know, okay. uh, not being able to go to school. Um, kids that were either entering into a new, like, you know, middle school, high school, college, or graduating, uh, being online for a year, you know, there's a lot of grieving, a lot of loss um, mm. to, to, to all of that. And, um, and so I think, you know, it became something that was, um, I, I haven't seen the numbers in terms of what that looks like, but I think, you know, everybody just, you know, everybody knew somebody that was having a hard time with the change. Right. Uh, and uh, so I want to take a little deeper dive into that, but I am old enough to be Susan's parent. You're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Susan, I mean, when did you start in your generation, your friends hearing about people speaking about mental health issues? Has that just been recently or has that been a oh, little yeah. Recently, and there's still a lot of people like I talk about it freely, but there's still a lot of people who don't. And like, I'm I don't know, I'm pretty sure my parents are still in the like that that's not real, like that doesn't exist, that's not a thing. So, the end, like, I definitely grew up with the idea that if you had to be medicated for something like that, then like that's not okay, that's not something that's really wrong with you. Yeah, and it, it was embarrassing and yeah, taboo to be ashamed of. Okay, okay. So, Jeff, COVID did kind of awaken things. And I was wondering if that's when people started speaking more about mental health, but you've seen that. So, you can't talk about any specific kind of thing, but did you see the change in your practice dealing with COVID? Absolutely. I mean, I, um, in a lot of different ways, actually. I mean, uh, one, the just in general, you know, the numbers skyrocketed. Yeah, just getting okay. phone calls. We went at one point from, you know, we typically would get, I don't know, uh, maybe eight to 10 phone calls a week for new intake evaluations. You know, we couldn't even see all of those people. Um, and then in the height of this, like maybe six months to, to 12 months into all of this, um, you know, we'd, we'd get 50, 60 phone calls some weeks. Wow. It was, it was nuts. Um, and really, uh, you know, uh, heartbreaking. In, in a lot yeah. of um, so for just from the numbers, but, but also, you know, the kids I, I'm, I'm seeing and the adults uh, just sort of the intensity of things really ratcheted up. I mean, you know, a lot of isolation, um, a lot of kids feeling kind of trapped, you know, in their room online, taking classes, Many kids told me they felt like it for them, it wasn't a good way to learn. It worked great for some people, not for others. And right. it made it really hard for them. Um, and so a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of depression. But I think the other aspect of it too was, and there's just no way around this, but sort of the, the, the changing view of it over time too. So, you know, if you remember March of uh, 2020, 
we're going into this and, and they're talking about a couple of weeks, (laughs) you know, everyone's, you know, I don't know if I can make it that long. How are we going to do this? Um, And then we shifted to, it was effectively uh, a little over a year and now the numbers are fluctuating, but now we're kind of in a place where nobody kind of knows what the right answer is. You know, do I, I'm still working remotely. Um, My, the way I do things, you know, psychiatry allows me to do that because I don't have to do physical exams and things like that. But, you know, when do I go back? How do we go back? How do we make that work? Right. Um, there's a lot of different feelings about it. So that uncertainty about So let's that, go back to the beginning first, because those are two big, huge things. So sure. what was the, you know, that isolation, that whether I learn well, what, what was the beginning part of that? What were the helps, encouragements? What was the help to get over that? You know, certainly, you know, relationships are, are a big part of that. That, that, that. That's huge, you know. So okay. um, feeling like, um, you know, you, you're able to have contact and whether it's, you know, with family with you at home or some form of electronic contact or distancing contact with, with friends. Um, but, you know, it, it was hard. A lot of kids I saw felt isolated. They didn't have the ability to connect with their friends. And mm-hmm. um, you know, that was tough. Um, there's also a subgroup of kids uh, and adults that tend to be introverted, a little bit more quiet. And some people kind of really, at least initially, really kind of enjoyed the idea that, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit like that too. You know, I, I don't have to deal with all this stuff going on all around me. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it simplified life in a lot of ways uh, for a lot of people. But I think my personal view on this is, is that, you know, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that people can, can develop certain types of, of um, emotional symptoms, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever. And they, if they're more situational, like I would consider this situational, it's a long-term issue, but even people that aren't sort of predisposed to, to depression or anxiety can develop symptoms around these kinds of things. And so you know, I, I don't, I, I'm uncomfortable medicating in that kind of situation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and we, you know, you do what you need to do in certain situations, but, you know, but a lot of times we're talking about other ways to, to kind of help support. So, and it's a lot of lifestyle stuff. I mean, it's the sort of simple day-to-day things that, that we all think about, you know, you want to make sure you're getting enough sleep. Sleep is the foundation for pretty much everything. You know, you want to make sure that you're, you're eating well, um, and uh, that you're getting enough physical activity, you know, that, that, you know, that can make a big difference for people. And then having an, an active uh, meditation type practice, I guess, whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, you know, whatever it is that can kind of help you kind of be more in the moment um, can also be helpful. Um, so I had a lot of conversations. I still do. I mean, I, I did before I still do, but um, that became kind of key for a lot of, a lot of people. Okay. And, in some ways, it was interesting too because it allowed families could do those kinds of things together. Um, so whenever well, I was just going to ask you, since you do work with a lot of kids, mm-hmm. does that mean you have permission somehow to talk to their parents about what's going on? Is that automatic, or does that have to be signed? Or yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is sort of a side issue, but Pennsylvania is a really strange state, and the way consent changed uh, maybe fifteen years ago or so. Um, it used to be that if you were for psychiatric issues, 14 was the age of consent in Philadelphia or in uh, Pennsylvania, but it's 18 for other medical issues. So that's confusing to make it okay. even more confusing. What's happened is it's now become this, there's dual consent between 14 and 18. And it, it, it's side, and I'll explain that in a minute. What that means is, is that say you go into the emergency room and, uh, and there's concern about suicidal thinking. And there's a question of whether needs, someone needs to be uh, hospitalized or not. If, if the person is anywhere from 14 to 18, 
the parents can consent to it. Uh, the, 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 the child themselves can consent to it. And the way things shift is that its consent goes towards active treatment. So if the child says, I want to go into the hospital and the parents say no, the consent is the child's to give. Um, okay. Wow. So, but, and frankly, we don't need to get into all this, but it, it's, it doesn't really function that way because there's just kind of practicalities around that. They don't really work. Right. So in terms of how, you know, and none of that was designed for outpatient care. Um, but at the end of the day, what I do is I just have everybody sign releases for everybody, but I really prefer to, to work uh, with the family. I mean, right. you know, everyone's living together unless they're extenuating circumstances. Um, everybody needs to be involved. And so it doesn't mean that I don't, you know, talk to the child alone, uh, right. that we don't have, you know, there's, there's confidentiality to an extent where certain things are, I'm, the way I kind of approach it is I'm going to talk to parents about things that they need to know, you know, if, if there's a dangerousness issue or something that they need to okay. be concerned about. Even in those situations, um, I'm going to have a conversation with the child about that uh, beforehand so that we're all on the same page. They may not necessarily agree with me, but at least we've had the conversation and right. uh, we've talked about how to approach it. So that um, so it just seems like you're talking a lot about relationship. Mm-hmm. And so as I was hearing you say that, I was knowing confidentiality issues, even for me when I was working, it was, oh gosh, you know. I need to talk to the spouse or I need to talk to the kids or the parents about this. I can't, this can't be just singular to move forward in a healthy way, but you did that by consent from everybody. So you can talk to. Yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, that was part of the, the child guidance center that I talked about. I mean, that was kind of the, the training there that, you know, this is, it's a systems approach and, um, and so, and, and I believe that that's, that's an important aspect to it, that, you know, you can't treat anybody in a vacuum. And if you're living with a number of other people, you know, there are relational dynamics that are a part of that, that um, are going to play a big role. So uh, it's important yeah. to get everybody in the room together. Not all the time, every time, but you know, right. part of it. Well, I don't want to do commercial for you because I know you're inundated <laughs> with patients, but I mean, it just sounds like such a healthier situation then so many situations that came to me in my pastoral office of I'm getting this medicine and I'm not getting the counseling help. I don't know what, do you have the right counselor? And if the counselors, you know, there's just, Mm -hmm. it's quite a juggling match to find the right counselor with the right psychiatrist, at least for me Mm -hmm. to make it healthy for the person, if that makes sense sense. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I agree with you. I mean, that, that's, that's the key. Um, in general, I talk with families about the idea that, you know, if you're on medication, there needs to be a therapy component to that therapy can mean a lot of different things. So that'll be different with somebody that has academic difficulties with ADHD as compared to somebody that is struggling with depression symptoms or okay. post-traumatic stress disorder. But, um, and you don't, there, there can be kind of a um, lifespan to therapy too, and medication. So you don't have to be in, you know, therapy doesn't have to be a lifelong commitment. Um, you know, there are, there's a process to it that, uh, you know, you can learn things from it, you can take things away from it. Um, but, you know, that's all part of the conversation. And in general, my preference, my strong preference is, is that somebody is working in therapy in addition to the, the work that I'm doing with them. And that again, there's communication, you know, that we need to all be on the same page and collaborating. And right. Talking with each other. So. Right. So talk to the other side. What's, um, 
and even for people like me when I was working, but uh, this would be for educators and others. What would, what's the difference of this person? I need to send this person to a counselor and I need to send this person to a psychiatrist mm -hmm. specifically for children, I guess I'm talking right now. So the real starting point would be to see the pediatrician or the family physician. I mean, that's, you know, oh, that okay. kind of gets you into the system more quickly. Okay. So usually I would recommend starting there. Um, so that pediatrician typically has known the child for years, hopefully, and, and can see changes and difference him or herself also there. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, pretty much everything else kind of falls into, I mean, my thought would be to start with a, a therapist or a counselor. Um, again, in a perfect world, we're all collaborating and working together. So if, if somebody sees a, a counselor or a therapist and there's concerns that, that you know, maybe they need to, to consider uh, either a higher level of care or something more intensive in terms of medications or whatever, um, then that, you know, that referral can always happen. So, um, you know, you don't necessarily need to start with a, a psychiatrist. Um, and that might even, you know, I can tell you that again, because it's a shortage specialty, you know, sometimes it can take, you know, a couple months, several months to get in to see somebody. So, right. you know, you may want to jump in with a therapist to start with um, yeah. first. So, you know, we live in a pretty intense environment in West, Western suburbs of Philadelphia. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, I probably had about three, counselors, therapists that I trusted um, because I'd sent people to others and the response I got back. So it wasn't just one person. I'm like, okay, I'm not sending to that person again. But I mean, the list was really small. Is it small out there or was that just my knowledge list that was small? I, oh, good ones. Sorry. I mean, you're not gritty. I know these are your friends. Also, so I'm not to be careful here. Yeah, no, but I, I think, you know, it's, um, it's always been a surprise to me because I think of this as being a small field, you know, that, that we should all know each other. But um, because I don't uh, formally take insurance, one of the things I'll do if somebody uh, wants to see a therapist and they want to go through their insurance, I'll have them, you know, you can come up with a provider list off your insurance website and I'll have people send it to me so I can look through it to see who I know. I'm always shocked at the number of people out there that I've never even heard of before. I mean, hundreds of people. So there's constantly people finishing up training programs and coming or moving into the area and, and opening up shop and other people that are leaving or, or coming into insurance or coming out of insurance uh, uh, programs. So, you know, I'll uh, come across somebody, I'll, I'll share a patient with somebody who ends up being really good. And, uh, you know, I, I put them on my list right away, somebody that I want to continue to refer to. So right. you know, that's always evolving, but, okay. but it is, we're, we're all human like everyone else. And so there's a wide array and variety of, of training. There's a wide array of personality styles. Um, I'll never forget one of the, the interesting studies that we looked at when I was in training years ago was the type of therapy versus the personality fit of the therapist. And mm. in terms of outcome studies, um, I mean, obviously it does matter what kind of therapy you're doing, but the, the bigger factor was how you felt like you clicked with your therapist. Um, right. So that's, that's huge. You know? um, yep. So even people that are very good aren't going to mesh with everybody. Right, right. That's like, um, so my first neurologist was from Spain and um, we just clicked immediately. 
And, you know, it was within that first year that he said, I want you to stay as absolutely strong as you can. And I mentioned the Camino. Just, I, no, I didn't do that. I just mentioned a walk in Spain. Mm-hmm. And he said the Camino to Santiago, because at that point I didn't know he grew up in Spain mm-hmm. and he'd walked three portions of it and wanted to, I mean, it was just made sense why we clicked mm-hmm. so well. And I was bummed when he moved into 100% research. Mm-hmm. So he had to move me on to another doctor, but I'm like, no, you shouldn't be in <laughs> research. You're such a nice guy. You, you get people, you, yeah, all that kind of stuff. But, um, uh, so same advice, it sounds like maybe for adults, the first visit is to their family physician. Mm-hmm. Adults can be more stubborn than children. If you can believe it, I'm sure you can. Um, I can with two parents dealing with dementia. So, you know, always helpful to have a partner there with them instead of them coming out of the doctor saying, they said I was great. I don't need anything. <laughs> uh, but that that yeah. medical doctor that knows them would be a good first stop. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, the other aspect of that is that, you know, a lot of family physicians, pediatricians, internists, I mean, they have, you know, they don't specialize in psychiatry, but they have some general knowledge of it. And so typically... Um, the people I'm seeing um, as patients are people that um, have not infrequently seen their, their primary care physician, tried a couple of things, and their primary has either referred them directly to me or someone like me to say, you know, I, you know, I'm kind of, I've done the two or three things that I'm comfortable with, and now we can kind of move on to something else. So it tends to be people that are more um, having more complicated difficulties in some ways. Yeah. Okay. So moving towards people like Susan and I, not professionals, uh, that person comes to you or you notice something about a person. So you're not a relative. um, You're just a colleague at work or you're a friend. Um, Even the mention of, oh, my life's awful. I don't like my life anymore. You know, they don't say I want to kill myself, but they say something dark enough that mm-hmm. makes your antenna go up. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a suggestion for people that hear those kind of things from friends and colleagues? And um, well, you should go see a psychiatrist tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. That usually doesn't go over very well. <laughs> yeah, it probably doesn't go over very well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to to the extent that, you're comfortable. So it depends on the relationship again. You know, if it's somebody right. that you're close with that you, you, you know, it's about trust. You know, if, if um, I would want to, I mean, obviously you're not going to do sort of a formal evaluation, but you know, <laughs> you, I think you want to get more information. You know, it's like, you know, boy, that sounds like that's really been difficult for you. Um, you know, how, how is it impacting you? How, you know, is this something that you're really concerned about beyond just kind of venting about how you're feeling? I mean, I kind of, kind of talking about it a little bit more. Okay. Where they go with it. Um, Cause it's always, you know, we all have fluctuations day to day in our mood or level of anxiety, all those kinds of things. 
as we talked about before, there's situational things and I mean, you know, the world is a rough place to live and there's a lot going on today, but always. So, you know, we can be impacted by those things. And so for me, the question would be like, is this something that you feel like is kind of getting, getting in the way for you to the point where you feel like it's impact, impacting your functioning, whatever that means. I mean, I wouldn't ask it that way, but you know, right. you know, are you, you know, are, are you isolating? Is it making it hard for you to feel like, you know, you can connect with people? Um, are you feeling sad or blue a lot of the time? You know, um, is, you know, are you having panic attacks? You know, like those kinds of things. Has the regular pattern of your life changed recently yeah. or, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sounds like you're talking about being, decent to other people being present yeah and a good friend and present yeah yeah and providing a, a safe place it's it's and it's usually not going to be one conversation i mean it might be but it's more often it's you know checking in and being supportive right. what can i you know not even what can i do for you today but this is what i'm going to do for you today you know some right. of those kinds of things that oh. um i do have a friend who is currently homeless and she she grew up in the foster system and aged out of the foster system and she was forcibly medicated when she was a kid and um she very at least to me she very clearly needs mental health professionals to care for her but she will not go she mm. refuses to seek any sort of professional help because of her experience growing up. And even with non-professionals, just with people, with church people, with anyone, she burns through people pretty quick. And so at least with her, I've found that the, yeah, the only thing I can do is be present. I can't, I can't invite her into my home because she's unsafe and she's volatile and she's angry. And I can't afford to find housing for her. And I can't make her go to the doctor. I can't, there's just so much that I can't do. And I can't give her advice um, because everyone gives her advice and she just gets really upset about it because um, she's like, everyone just tells me what to do and they want me to just pull myself up by my own bootstraps and they just feel like I'm not doing anything. Um, so yeah, the only thing I've got is to just listen and say I'm sorry and try to be, just not give up on her and try to actually be a listening mm. ear because everyone else just eventually shuts her out. I don't know what Jeff has to say professionally, but what you just said right there really struck a chord because we've talked about her before. But when you say not give up on her, because it's so easy for so many people to give up on that type of personality. Well, it's also like, I can't take any credit for that. She's someone that I actually highly identify with. Like I, her story, honestly, I was a little kid who made up stories like hers. And because I write as a hobby and I used to make up stories all the time. And I, in my like very introverted little world when I was a kid, like I was terrified of having a life like hers. And, um, and a lot of the times when we're talking, you know, she'll ask me like, why is the why me question? 
And I don't have an answer for her because she and I are actually very, very similar. And there's no reason why I should be here where I am with the people I'm with and with the like provisions that I have and she shouldn't. Um, And so anyway, I don't, it's easy for me. You were talking about meshing, you know, like the people, doctors and patients and whoever, just do you mesh with the person that you're with? And she is someone that I get. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy for me to not give up on her. Mm. But I completely understand why other people do. No. I, I think it, you know, there's this kind of broad range of, you know, we're talking about, you know, quote, you know, mental health today. Um, and when we think about that, we think about, you know, treatment and psychiatrists and therapists and psychologists and, you know, all, all kinds of different things along those lines. But this impacts all of us in our relationships every day in terms of how we interact with people and then the support we're providing. So in many ways, there's nothing magical about therapy. I mean, it's a process and there's people that are trained to do it very well, but it's really about self-discovery in a lot of ways. And um, so kind of being there with her and providing that stable relationship for her um, sounds wonderful. That must be just wonderful for her to have, like you said, someone who's not telling her what to do or what she needs to, you know, where she should be going to get help and how she can change herself. Um, Just being present is... That's a beautiful thing. It can make a world of difference for people. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time, live well. Mm